Hello, hi, Danny. This is Steffi Tan, a former schoolmate of mine who's currently teaching math and English at Saint Hilda's Secondary School. Back when we were 17-year-olds in the first year at Tampines Junior College, Steffi and I were in the same project work group. Our topic: Olivia Lum and Highflux, the company that famously came up with the recycled wastewater product known as New Water. Okay. Uh, what I remember was that、uh, we actually went to Marina Barrage for a、uh, for an excursion, and then from there our group came up with the fact that you know maybe we want to do something that、uh, that has got to do with water. So、um, at that point of time, I remember very clearly that.、Um, We have been to quite a bit of excursions, and they always give out new water. So I guess that's how we came about with the idea of doing new water. So, how did we do? Yeah,、uh, I think we did quite well.、Um, we we did much better than expected, maybe because we did rehearse、uh, quite a few times together. So I think we did impress the teachers quite a bit. Yeah, we gotta be. Hello, 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 and you're tuning in to an episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. Since the days of junior college and project work, much has changed in life. I went through two years of national service, graduated from university, got a job, got married, and of course, started this podcast. What's also great to see was that our project work topic, Olivia Lam and Highflux, were moving on in the world as well. Expanding their water treatment operations to all sorts of far-flung places, such as China, Saudi Arabia, and even Algeria. Recently, however, things haven't been so good for the company. For the fiscal year 2017, Highflux posted a massive loss of 116 million Sing dollars. Then suspended trading of its shares and started a court-supervised reorganization process just a few months later. Safe to say that when you need the courts to stave off your debt payments, something has probably gone awry. So, what happened to Singapore's water princess? How did the crown jewel of our nation's entrepreneurial spirit come to this? From rags to riches to dodgy decisions, from entrepreneuring to empire building, we will be covering the incredible rise and fall of Olivia Lam and Highflux in a special two-part feature. For every giant that falls must have started from somewhere, and the ascension of one of the world's premier water treatment companies is in itself a story to behold. So, without further ado, here is part one: the rise.
It all begins in a small Malaysian town known as Kampar. By the way, I came from a very little town called Kampar, in the middle of Malaysia. And this small little town, um, you don't you don't need to read newspaper because there's no newspaper. Nobody will bother to distribute newspaper in my small little town. But don't let Olivia Lam's candid demeanor fool you. Kampar is not your idyllic slash romantic idea of a countryside retirement destination free from the worries and woes of life. Rather, as Olivia Lam points out, generation after generation, they were living in a poverty, and every morning when you woke up, you will hear cries, you will hear、uh, parents beating their children, you will hear quarrels everywhere. There wasn't any pleasant things about that whole village. And believe it or not, it could arguably be said that Olivia Lam, who grew up and lived her formative years in these dire conditions, could have actually had it worse. Born in 1962, she was abandoned at birth at the Kampur District Hospital in Perak State, and never knew or met her biological parents. Yet. Instead of ending up as another tragic orphan case, she was adopted and raised by an illiterate widow, whom she would call her grandmother. The first angel, I suppose, in my life was my grandmother, because、uh, I, I suppose, without her adopting me from the from the hospital, I would not have been what I am today. You, you just can't imagine if I ended up in、uh, some other family, whom you do not have any love. Given the circumstances, Olivia Lam calling her grandmother an angel is incredibly fitting, and we can see why from one of her earliest childhood memories. In primary one, I was very weak. I could not join PE class, and I told my grandmother, you know, I wanted to be healthy. And my grandmother said, "You can do it." My grandmother will wake me up in the morning, and I'll train. And I still remember the first sports day that I took part in. That was in primary five. My grandmother actually came to support me, and she 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 brought with her a big empty box. And、uh, my my neighbor asked her, "Why do you bring such a big empty box?" And she told my neighbor, "Oh, my granddaughter is going to win prize. I'm going to、uh, bring a lot of prize back, so I need a big box with me." And that actually set me thinking. She has so much faith and trust in me. How could I fail her? So I remember the first、uh, sports day. I I I really tried my hardest, and I won back some prizes. Throughout the whole life, I have encountered many many problems. It was that little faith that keep me going in life. However, while her grandmother provided ample love and faith, financial security was much harder to come by. At the age of three, her grandmother gambled away her life savings and had to sell her house to make ends meet. In an article for the new paper, 
Olivia Lum recalls that they moved into a hut that had bare earth for a floor and zinc sheets for a roof. There was no electricity or running water to speak of, and not even a private bathroom. Just a common squat pan that was shared by all the villagers and emptied once a day. These dire conditions and the strong desire to repay her grandmother's love and faith was to be the foundation by which Olivia Lam's entrepreneurial spirit fostered. At the age of nine, in order to support her family and pay for her school fees, Olivia Lam began working at a local factory weaving rattan bags. The rattan, sometimes uh, if it is too hard, you cut your hand. And especially when you're so young, you, can, you, you, you really have to pull very hard in order to make the school bag very tight. Otherwise, the school bag rejected, you don't get to earn the money. Every school bag you make, uh, you earn 15 cents Malaysian cents. The first time I received was a $5 note. I came back, I took the $5 note, I ironed it. And uh, after I ironed it, I, I put it in between my textbook. And, uh, you know, when I went to school, I flipped open my textbook and looked at the $5 many times. And then after that, I gave it to my grandmother. Because it was so rare to see a $5 note. That last anecdote, the one about the $5 note, is particularly insightful. For not only does it show the gravity of Olivia Lam's poverty at the time, but you can also feel the sense of accomplishment oozing from her voice. For a nine-year-old girl trying to beat the insurmountable odds of escaping her circumstances, that $5 note must have felt like a million bucks. Ever the opportunist, Olivia Lam would also pick fruits and sell them on the streets during the weekends when the factory was closed. As she recalls, these were the moments when she set her sights on becoming a businesswoman. So, in a way, a lot of people ask me, was it your real inspiration to do business after your um, university degree or after you worked? I say probably at a young age. Because at a young age, comparing making rattan and selling fruits, which, which one is easier? Of course, selling fruits, because you just sit along the roadside. And then you just keep calling people to buy your fruits. Instead of squatting down in the factory floors, and one by one, you've got to weave your bags. So I, at a very young age, I told myself, I'm going to be a businesswoman. Because selling is so easy. As long as you sell good banana and good mango, there will always be people buying from you. There's this quote by American Indian author Deepak Chopra that reads, There is always one moment in childhood when the door opens and lets the future in. For Olivia Lam, the harsh reality was that the door would not reside in her home village. There was barely any running water or electricity, let alone the facilities and institutions where one can develop and move up in the world. There was, however, a way out.
将来出来找事情容易做。That was Lee Soo Kyung, one of Olivia Lam's form teachers while she was in secondary school. As he recalls here, Olivia Lam once asked him what the difference was between the rich and the poor. His answer: education. That actually sets me thinking that you know, okay, I'm very determined. I want to be very good in my schoolwork. I, I want to make it in life. True to her word, Olivia Lam excelled in school, catching the attention of many of her teachers as well as the vice principal Chong Pak Hing. Mr. Chong would personally advise her to move to Singapore, where she would quote have a better chance of bettering herself. This was Olivia Lam's moment, and Singapore was the door to the future. Here's the thing about Chopra's quote, though. While it does reflect the idea that there are pivotal moments in childhood where the future starts to crystallize, it is far from being some chance occurrence. As we've seen, it might be the case that others have to show you the door. Or that more importantly, one still has to take the step and walk through it. In any case, the process is not an automatic one, and Olivia Lam certainly didn't find it easy. She recalls her hesitation in the moment, asking, quote, "Was it really so critical for me to get away from this hometown? I have so many friends. I have to leave my grandmother." That was the hardest thing to do. Eventually, however, with the blessings of her grandmother and with ten dollars in her pocket, Olivia Lam, then sixteen years old, finally made her way to Singapore in 1977. Once she was there, she was rejected several times before being accepted into Tiong Bahru Secondary School. And finance her education and living expenses by giving tuition during the weekdays and being a sales promoter on the weekends. She maintained her stellar academic performance and entered the prestigious Hua Chong Junior College shortly after. For a while, it seemed like Olivia Lam was well on her path. Life, unfortunately, had other plans. Actually, after I left, she felt very ill.、Um, my neighbor told me that she she was very alone. She has lost the purpose in life. All the time, she was looking forward to me coming home. So, if you if you look back, sometimes. During her A-level examinations, Olivia Lam's grandmother passed away. 
In bitterly poetic fashion, the angel who took in and nurtured the abandoned orphan wouldn't live to see the fruits of her love and faith flourish, leaving Olivia Lum with the most painful of debts. Given the story I've told so far, I hope you can appreciate just how much this meant to her, or to put it in another way, how human she really is. But perhaps what is important is how you respond to tragedy. And Olivia Lam, who is no stranger to hardship, bore the pain and soldiered on. After a time at Hua Chong, she would enter the National University of Singapore as a chemistry major. Her aspirations of business, however, were not far behind. Uh, I think we were all quite uh, focused on just studying. But with Olivia, she was always thinking of doing business, of looking for opportunities, of great ideas that she had that one day she would do well in business. It, it wasn't a very much of academic career that she was pursuing, more a business-oriented focus that she always had from day one. And true to her former classmate Rose Tong's words, Olivia Lam would continue the double life she's always had throughout her schooling days, this time by selling a whole variety of goods such as insurance, cosmetics, flower pots, and souvenirs. Through her hard work and hustle, she was also one of the only students in her cohort who managed to afford a car by the end of her first year in university, and in 1986, graduated from NUS with honors. In terms of shaping her later career as the CEO of a world-class water treatment company, her time at NUS was invaluable, providing her with numerous mentors and networks that would help her in the future. This was to be the case when Lam landed her first job as a chemist at the multinational pharmaceutical company GlaxoSmithKline. Against the backdrop of Singapore's first post-independence recession which started in 1985, Lam entered the company through a recommendation from one of her professors. This was significant for several reasons, for not only was she able to land a great job at a world-renowned company while her peers were struggling, her time at GSK was also when the bigger picture started to click. So one day, I chanced upon an incident that have actually totally changed my life. I was tasked to take charge of the wastewater. In pharmaceutical companies, one of the things that they produce most, other than drugs, is wastewater. Because they use all kinds of chemicals to produce drugs. So, so during that time, I went to see uh, Jakarta River and the rivers in, in Malaysia and 
everybody keep dumping the waste into the river. So I told myself, it must be a, a sunrise business. Because as a chemist, I know that when you pollute the river, it takes a long, long time to clean it up. And also, if you don't clean up the river, over time, you have no clean, good, clean water to drink. And it's a disaster for Asian people. So I told myself, I could do something. Somebody has to do this dirty job. And, you know, being so young, at the age of 27 years old, I was full of inspiration and full of ideas, dreams. And number one, I want to do my business. Number two, I want to save the world. After three years of working at GlaxoSmithKline, Olivia Lam walked up to her boss, tendered her resignation, and started her company, then known as Hydrochem. Some of them knowing my background was, would think that I had actually taken such a great risk into uh, resigning and getting into something that uh, I had no experience in. But I cannot live life with a dream unfulfilled. So, finally, I take a plunge. But starting a business at such a young age was always going to have its limitations. Lack of experience and knowledge is one thing, but capital is another. But when I resigned, I had no money. So I had to sell away my little house and a little car and uh, get collected about $20,000 because I got to pay back some loan. And with the $20,000, I thought it was a lot of money for me to start the business. But of course, I was proven wrong. By the time I rented a HDB office and they charged me three months deposit, 10,000 gone. So I was left with $10,000. And because there was no car, so I had to buy a little motorbike to get around. Once Olivia Lam got underway, she tried approaching companies on the basis of selling consultancy services on how they can treat their wastewater. But seeing as she was a startup with no prior record of success or failure, most of these companies didn't even bother to talk to her. As a compromise, Olivia Lam went to several MNCs and offered to be an independent agent to sell their wastewater products. Credibility again was a big hindrance, so this time, it did bear some positive results from some rather creative marketing. So I carry some of the multinational water treatment products and I started to peddle in Singapore. But Singaporeans are very brand conscious. The moment they look at Tampines Industrial Park, my first office, they already know you're a small little startup. So I think address is very important. So they didn't want to give me any business. So in the end, I had to go across Malaysia. When I go across Malaysia, I carry a card Singapore. It's a multinational company. <laughs> and I had to go to Indonesia. Well, even more branded because I'm from Singapore, flying over to Indonesia. So I started selling my products in Malaysia and Singapore. And no joke, I started really getting a lot of business that, that is able to keep me afloat. 
Her guile and cunning may have been impressive, but what's even more remarkable was her grit, as seen in a grueling daily routine which she maintained for years. So early in the morning, I will wake up at 5 a.m. You got to cut through all the traffic jam and so on. So you better wake up early. So I will go early in the morning to take order. All the basic customer. Then, when I come back to Singapore, it's already a late afternoon. Then you got to do packing for the next delivery. And then you got to uh, work with a logistic company in some of the larger component you got to ship. And at night, you got to sit down and do typing, do letters, do whatever thing. Then until very late. So you pound everything. So you work 14 hours every day. There's this essay written by the French economist Frédéric Bastiat called That Which Is Seen and That Which Is Not Seen. For entrepreneurs, I find this title to be very fitting of the unbalanced perception that they face. For what you see portrayed in the media is usually the successes, the achievements, and the riches. What you don't see is the stress and pressure that they face the long hours, the grueling commutes, and the grind and hustle of pursuing a dream. Where nine-year-old Olivia Lam noticed the difference between employee and employer in her anecdote about making rattan bags and selling fruit, Olivia Lam, the entrepreneur, experienced fully what that difference meant. For being an entrepreneur means that you are responsible for all aspects of your business. And while big businesses are able to spread these responsibilities across hundreds or even thousands of managers and employees, startup entrepreneurs usually have to bear this burden by themselves. This is perhaps why the rate of startup failure is so incredibly high. You can imagine the amount of commitment and grit you have to undergo, not to mention the months or possibly even years of trying to survive without a steady paycheck. It shouldn't be surprising then that compared to what you see portrayed in the media, the stark reality is that being your own boss is a lot harder than it sounds. The funny thing, however, is that even after beating the odds time and time again, Olivia Lam still wasn't done. Here's Dr. Deirdre Murugasu, a long-serving executive at Hyflux, and currently senior advisor for the firm's CEO and president. In those times, Olivia had already seen into the future that basically Singapore is too small a market, and that if you really wanted to be a global participant, you needed a much bigger market than that. Oh, and in case you think entrepreneurs have too much to worry about already, there's always this thing called competition. We just could not compete with all these big companies. They have good products, uh, they have big finances, and um, it, it, it's an uphill task for me. So I told myself that I must open another market. And so, for the third time in Olivia Lam's life, she was looking to take another major step for a career, this time by going to China, 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 China. You go over to China, 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 China. 
But while targeting the world's largest market makes sense on paper, it's not as straightforward as it seems. And certainly, back in the early 90s when you had China's tight grip on foreigners and capital, and not to mention the whole controversy surrounding the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre, even pondering the move would be considered ludicrous. But with her bigger competitors moving out of China and into places like Malaysia and Indonesia for these reasons, Olivia Lam believed she saw an opportunity that was just too big to ignore. What's also notable is that during this period, Hydrochem transitioned from being just an agent to a manufacturer of its own water treatment products. This was done by Olivia Lam investing her hard-earned profits into research and development, and when her customers demanded for a solution that was smaller and more compact as compared to traditional ones, she found an answer in membranes. What's so special about this innovation was that it was highly customizable and compact, since in essence, it utilized thousands of thin sheets or barriers to filter out waste from water. Compared to the costly and limited solutions such as distillation or evaporation offered at the time, Olivia Lam's product was a breakthrough. This innovation would eventually turn into Hydrochem's unique selling point and was to play a key role in the company's future success. Armed with an innovative solution and plenty of daring and ambition, Olivia Lam was ready to take the giant leap and enter the world's biggest market. Yet, as Dr. Murugasu notes, there was a familiar problem standing in the way. One day, she came running back and she said, I've got it, I've got it, I've got the product that I want to sell into China. And said, now I need the money. <laughs> Undeterred, Olivia Lam would begin gathering a group of 10 potential investors to raise the $1 million needed to enter the Chinese market. These included three of her former university professors, one of her dentist friends, and Dr. Murugasu as well. One day after the fundraising presentation, Olivia Lam received a call, and Hydrochem had raised $1.2 million dollars. I actually felt suddenly a lot of pressure on myself because I could not lose that money. And um, th there's more pressure than doing the business itself. So I told myself that I mustn't fail. But time and again, faith and ambition were not enough to smooth over the rough periods. And in the first three years of Hydrochem's entry into China from 1994 to 1996, the company nearly went bankrupt. Woman's 一般的人是不敢来的,因为他的这个专业是环保,水,那个时候中国根本就谈不上。That was Chen Bao Liu, 
a former Chinese ambassador to Singapore. She noted that back when Hydrochem first arrived in China, it had only been a little over a decade since the Chinese market opened up to the world in 1978. In economic terms, this meant that China was far from pursuing the same needs and directions as other developed nations, and that crucially, didn't place the same emphasis on environmental issues such as water treatment. Also. In terms of business, even though Olivia Lam has Chinese heritage, she was still wildly unfamiliar with how things worked in China, and as Chen notes, must have been incredibly brave to even dare to come at that time. This is a part of Olivia Lam's story which I'm struggling to characterize. For if you were to just look at the first three years of her entry into China. You'd be forgiven for thinking that it was reckless or just terribly naive. After all, it was clear that she didn't fully understand the market, and that it could have resulted in the complete loss of all 1.2 million dollars of her investors' funding. And it's hard to imagine how such an immense failure could have impacted her career and ambitions. But alas. Towards the tail end of 1996, conditions stabled, and more MNCs returned to China, who would ironically form the bulk of Hydrochem's business there. This was as the foreign companies were more wary of violating environmental regulations, and thus would have a greater incentive in seeking water treatment services. Moreover, it also helped that Hydrochem was one of the only companies in China that provided such services at the time, and had a boss in Olivia Lam that could speak both Chinese and English. But perhaps the most crucial aspect of Hydrochem's move to China was what happened outside of it. For beginning in 1997. The devastating Asian financial crisis started in Thailand and quickly spread to many regions in Southeast Asia, including Singapore, Indonesia, and Malaysia. Fortunately for Hydrochem, China felt little to no impact, due in large part to the isolated nature of its economy, as well as to its currency, the renminbi, being kept under tight control by authorities. By 1998, while most of the company's larger competitors in Singapore were closing or struggling to stay afloat, Hydrochem stayed strong and kept growing its business. It was also opportune that the Singaporean government began heavily promoting water recycling in the same year, which allowed Hydrochem, previously the small-time agent picking up the scraps of the larger players, to swoop in. And establish a dominant foothold in the market. Soon enough, the company was winning bid after bid to build water treatment facilities for big name MNCs such as Siemens or Toshiba. At this point, Olivia Lam and Hydrochem were officially in the big leagues. It's kind of funny, isn't it, how things played out? What seemed like a reckless move ended up being the impetus to spearhead Hydrochem's ascension. Of course, much credit goes to the determination of Olivia Lam for sticking it out, 
and for her opportunism to strike when it mattered the most. From the early 2000s to the middle of the 2010s, Hydrochem would go on an incredible run, setting milestone after milestone and becoming a key figure in the world of water treatment. These include, for instance, building the first wastewater recycling plant with new water in 2001, building Singapore's first water desalination plant in Tuas in 2005, opening more desalination plants in places such as India, Oman, and Saudi Arabia, and even being the first water treatment company to publicly list on Singapore's stock market, which incidentally was when Hydrochem officially changed his name to Hyflux. And of course, Olivia Lam was well recognized for her efforts and contributions, and during these years scooped up numerous awards and honors, such as the Her Magazine Women of the Year Award in 2002, the Singapore Business Awards Business Women of the Year Award in 2004, and even being the first woman to ever win the EY World Entrepreneur of the Year Award in 2011. From a poor orphan with a dream to a global figurehead in the fight for clean water, this Rags to Riches story is about as remarkable as it can get. At least you think that the fame and fortune has gotten to her head, here's Olivia Lam describing one of her proudest achievements. I wanted to show you something very significant. I did the first water big-scale recycling plant for Brit Park. And I must tell you the story behind. How come they, they can adopt my techno technology and they like my technology? I went to the Bird Park. This is the then CEO of Bird Park. And I told him that I can help you to recycle water for your bird. And that time, they brought in some very, very expensive Empress Penguin. Very, very precious. But they need, you know, Penguin needed a lot of water, fresh water. So PUP told them that we cannot afford to give you so much water. If you want, you recycle water. And so, because there was no company approaching him, I approached him. I said, can I recycle water for your bank queen? He said, will you kill my bank queen? I said, okay, I demonstrate to you first, I drink first. So I drank myself first. Then he saw that I'm, I was still surviving. So he believed that, you know, maybe perhaps this water can be for bank queen. And until today, they're still using this recycling water. Unfortunately, this is not a story with a happy ending. Will a white knight come to the rescue of the beleaguered water treatment firm? Well, observers say this is a strong possibility, even as Hyflux is in talks with 29 potential financiers to, for rescue funding to the tune of 200 million Singapore dollars. But let's leave that for the next episode. 
so that we can walk away from this one picturing happy penguins frolicking about in high flux treated freshwater. In part 2, we will be covering high flux's recent troubles, what led them there, as well as what it can mean for investors, creditors, and even Singapore itself. Stay tuned, you don't want to miss this. Thank you for tuning in to the Economical Rice Podcast. If you like what you hear, do help by sharing this episode to your friends and family, or by subscribing on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Music for this episode is provided by Podington Bears, Blue Dot Sessions, and the wonderfully talented artist Vanilla, whose track you're listening to right now. If you're curious, these are linked in the show notes on the website, along with all the other research materials used. Oh, and by the way, if you love learning about the reality that an entrepreneur faces, then you should definitely check out the Startup Podcast by Gimlet Media, a show where Gimlet founder Alex Bloomberg provides a first-hand narrative account of his struggles and successes while setting up his podcast company. Alright, so if you have any feedback or questions, do reach out by leaving a comment or through the social media links in the description. This has been your host Danny at the Economical Rise Podcast, where over here, we have to serve you the grains of capitalism. Music